My name's Tony Travers. Uh, I'm here this morning from the Government Department here at the LSE to wish you a very good morning and uh, to thank you for coming today on behalf of the school to welcome you to the campus and I'm here to chair this morning's uh, meeting uh, and speech by Nick Clegg and a special welcome of course to any alumni in the audience. Always nice to see you back at the school. Now today's event is hosted by British Government at LSE, which is a relatively new initiative based in the Government Department, but involving all parts of the school, to promote and develop research on British Government and to extend these things within the school. The programme organises regular public events and, for example, this autumn we have a series of talks looking at the role of parliamentary select committees and their role in scrutinising the executive, with several chairmen of select committees coming to speak here. There's also an, L an excellent LSE uh, British politics and policy blog, and for anybody who doesn't follow it, well worth looking out. My final plug is to encourage you to look at the upcoming programme of events here at the school. There are over 120 events scheduled in the coming months. Speakers include the former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, economist Jeffrey Sachs, and uh, for sports fans, former rugby player Brian Moore. Details of all these events are, of course, online. Anyway, the purpose of this morning, however, is to welcome uh, Nick Clegg, the Deputy Prime Minister, to the LSE. He studied uh, social anthropology at Cambridge and continued his education at the University of Minnesota and the College of Europe in Bruges. After a brief spell in journalism, Nick worked at the European Commission. He was elected as an MEP in 1999 and then to the United Kingdom Parliament in 2005. He became the leader of the Liberal Democrats in 2007, and as you will well know, he became Deputy Prime Minister last year uh, after the coalition government was formed following the general election. His speech here this morning could uh, barely be more uh, important given the economic turbulence still ongoing out there this morning uh, and the challenges faced by policymakers here in the UK, uh, in Europe and further afield. We look forward to what he has to say. For those Twitter users, modern technology, for Twitter users among you uh, in the audience and perhaps also for you, Nick, I believe you have a Twitter account which I understand is Nick underscore Clegg and a hashtag for today's event is hash LSE recovery. <laughs> yes, well thank you. Uh, to read it. As usual after the lecture there will be uh, the chance for you to put your questions to Nick and he will handle that. Uh, but for now will you please join me in welcoming the Deputy Prime Minister to the LSE who will now deliver his lecture which is entitled The Road to Recovery, What Can Government Do in the Current Economic Crisis? Nick Clay. Tony, thank you very, very much and, and good morning to, to all of you. Today, uh, as Tony said, I'm going to talk about the economy and I'm certainly, of course, in the right place. For more than a century now, uh, LSE scholars have been at the forefront of every single major economic debate, asking and answering the most pressing questions of the day. Today, the big question facing governments is this. Given the unprecedented pressures in the global economy, what can we do to restore stability 
and encourage growth. The Coalition will be saying more about that between now and our autumn statement in November. But I wanted to make this speech today because the international situation has changed dramatically. It is worse even to just six months ago. To quote Christine Lagarde, the new head of the IMF, we are in a dangerous new phase. A huge rise in oil and food prices, a slowdown in overseas markets, continued turmoil in the Eurozone, ongoing uncertainty in the United States. Far from a one-off shock, the 2008 banking crisis has set off a chain reaction that continues to reverberate around the globe. And here in the United Kingdom, we're still feeling the pressure. This week, we've heard that inflation is still high at 4.5%. And in the last hour, we've been told that unemployment has risen. So the reality we face is stark. There is now little margin for error. But that does not mean we are helpless. It does not mean we intend just to sit on our hands while the global economy falters. Our critics say that all this government is capable of is cuts. That beyond lowering a few business taxes, reducing a bit of red tape, there is little else we are willing or able to do. That is absolutely wrong. We can do more, we are doing more, and we will do more. Internationally, promoting cooperation, discouraging our global partners from turning inwards. And here in the United Kingdom, where yes, we must stay firm on tackling our deficit, but at the same time, where there are levers we can pull to stimulate growth, not least to deliver infrastructure, something I want to give special attention to today. <coughs> First, international cooperation, as important today as it was in the weeks that followed Lehman Brothers' collapse. But it's even harder to achieve this time, because for so many of us, the options available now are even fewer than we had then. And everywhere, governments are, are calculating a trade-off between protecting their national interests and working together for our collective good. That is a false choice. Our fates are completely tied. We urgently need to rebalance global demand and unwind dangerous imbalances. Having contracted for a while, the imbalance between countries in deficit, deficit and in surplus has widened again. Countries with large deficits and fiscal vulnerabilities must, of course, put in place credible fiscal consolidation plans, pushing forward structural reforms to improve their competitiveness. And surplus countries must actively increase domestic demand, keeping their markets open. Beggar thy neighbour approaches may be attractive now. They will be less so if, in another three years, we're still not out of this mess. In terms of the Eurozone, the real failure has not been the original concept of monetary union. It's that the rules were never applied stringently enough in the first place. The Stability and Growth Pact was actively watered down in 2005, allowing members to wriggle out of their fiscal commitments to each other. And now we are seeing the effects. But on a day like today, when people have been talking openly about the possibility of a, of a Greek default. The key question is not 
How do we seek to renegotiate the United Kingdom's place in the European Union in a treaty that hasn't even materialized yet? The single most important question, the urgent question, is what role can we play in helping the Eurozone avoid further turmoil? Creating the stability needed for prosperity and jobs in the Eurozone, of course, and in the United Kingdom, too. A stable, healthy Eurozone matters massively to the United Kingdom. It's where we send 40% of all of our exports. And together, we all face a long-term problem of competitiveness. A problem not even a, a raft of new treaties could fix. So beyond the immediate issues surrounding fiscal and monetary policy, what we need is deepening and widening of the single market. It's the world's largest borderless marketplace, designed by a British European Commissioner. A market that already adds £520 billion to our shared economy. And if liberalised further in services and, di and the digital industry, could add £690 billion. So as Europe undergoes a period of longer-term change, that's what should be the United Kingdom's real priority. Completing the single market is how we put UK interests first. We also need international cooperation to bring stability to our international banking system. Working together to implement agreements on bank capital under Basel III. Agreeing a common approach, approach to the extra capital the most systemically important banks should hold. And we need to get our act together on trade. Many countries are, so far at least, resisting the lure of protectionism. But progress on trade liberalisation has dramatically stalled. It would be a huge mistake to give in to that deadlock, to give up on the Doha round, worth £110 billion to the world economy every year. History shows that protectionism invariably follows in the wake of global economic slowdown. Our task is not to repeat history, but of course to learn from it. Yes, we do need to be realistic. Progress will be slow. And Doha doesn't cover everything, for example, on services and investment. So we must keep pushing on bilateral agreements as well between the European Union and others, and work harder to bring the European Union and the United States together, the world's largest economic areas. So that's what we're striving for internationally. But what about here, in the United Kingdom? The Coalition has always said that our first priority is tackling our deficit. When we came into power last year, it was bigger than Spain's, Italy's, Portugal's, even Greece's. Because we set out a decisive plan to reduce it, we have not been picked off by the markets and as the OECD repeated last week, our plan remains right for the United Kingdom. So there will be no deviation on deficit reduction. We knew our recovery would be choppy. We knew our political opponents would holler endlessly for a plan B, even though their path leads to soaring interest rates and crashing credibility. That's the luxury of opposition. But to those who say the facts have changed, yes, they have. The economic context is much worse than before. 
But more than ever, we have a responsibility to hold our nerve. Seeing through the difficult decisions, maintaining market confidence, creating a platform for growth. But let's get something straight. This is about economics. Not ideology, not stubbornness, and our plan doesn't put a straitjacket on policy either. Credible fiscal policy allows us to retain loose, responsive monetary policy, and our plan allows for the automatic stabilizers to work. So the government is not blind to the deterioration of the environment in which we operate. More needs to be done for our recovery. That's obvious. But deficit reduction was only ever intended as a means to an end. It's a fiscal framework to ensure stability. And there are other crucial steps we must take to deliver growth. <laughs> so what can government do for growth? Let's start with the wrong approach. It's a mistake for government to try and do everything. Labour proved that. Before the crash, the previous government's economic record, flattered by years of unsustainable household and government borrowing, led them to believe that government was the only thing that mattered for the economy. Gordon Brown, as Chancellor and then Prime Minister, believed the money would never stop flowing, that whole communities could be sustained by public sector spending, that private sector growth could be driven by endless initiatives from the centre. But the money did stop. And despite over 3,000 schemes aimed at business support, an array of incomprehensible tax breaks, endless so-called business solutions, business investment simply didn't rise in the way it should have. Whitehall cannot grow an economy. We need the ceaseless experimentation of thousands of businesses, private saving and investment to channel money where it is most productive. Equally, of course, Government shouldn't do nothing. Deal with the deficit, but then step back in the hope that a thousand flowers will bloom. That's as bad as trying to do everything. Wishful thinking at its worst. Take regulation. Some people will tell you that all regulation is bad for growth. The hallmark of the meddling state, inhibiting the functioning of a market economy. That simply isn't true. Some rules, of course, are a problem usually endless form-filling and unnecessary red tape. And that's why we're looking across the board to reduce that burden. But some regulations are positively pro-growth. Instances of the state stepping in to protect businesses and support industry, like patenting rules, encouraging our creators to invest in new ideas, or competition law, ensuring the best can expand, the worst leave the market, and new players enter too. Rather than do nothing... Rather than do everything, governments should do less, but do it better, creating the conditions for growth. Like in tax, where this government is simplifying the system, reducing corporation tax to make us more competitive. In our banks, where we have this week welcome proposals to ring-fence retail banks, protecting them from the volatility of global investment banking. That reform will, of course, take some time. And in the meantime, our priority must remain, first and foremost, to get the banks to honour their commitment to lend £190 billion to businesses this year. 
In skills, we're maintaining cash investment in schools, creating hundreds of thousands of new apprenticeships, and taking what are, of course, controversial decisions on higher education funding to keep our universities world class. They are all supply-side interventions to make the United Kingdom a better place to invest and do business. But this isn't just about supply-side reform. You have to think about demand too. Our troubles have very much been a demand crisis. The bank's sudden withdrawal of funds, asset price falls, volatility in the markets, they all hit demand. And even if we had the least regulated, the most skilled, the most competitive economy on the planet, if no one spends any money, that's not enough. Clearly with debt so high, private and public, we have to be realistic about the restraints on boosting demand. And I've asked Vince Cable to do some work on how we create the environment and incentives for businesses to free up new capital now when we need them to, rather than hold off. And that brings me to infrastructure. Because investment in infrastructure stimulates demand. Not overnight, but more quickly than many supply-side measures. And it raises productivity well into the future too. Not just any infrastructure. We need to be clear about that. The previous government took a sort of kitchen sink approach. Any and all capital spending constituted so-called pro-growth investment. But that's not true. Most capital spending is worthwhile for social and economic reasons. But it doesn't all support long-term prosperity. So when money's tight, of course, you have to be ruthless, focusing on the investments that transform growth potential. Transport, energy, digital communications, road and rail so manufacturers can transfer, transfer goods, better broadband so small, high-tech companies can flourish, renewable energy so low-carbon industry can too. If you modernise this kind of infrastructure, you stimulate activity in the shorter term and you build systems high-growth industries can use for years to come. Transport schemes announced in the Spending Review, for example, will deliver major boosts to growth, like the Switch Island Link Road in Merseyside, where £20 million of government investment will generate 35 times that in economic benefits. Or increasing the, the capacity of the M62, which will generate over £1 billion for GDP. Investments that will keep giving, the kinds of investments the United Kingdom needs. We may be one of the best countries to set up and run a business, but we rank 28th in the world for infrastructure. A nation that once led the way in engineering and construction, the home of Wren, Brunel, Stevenson, it was Tim Berners-Lee, a British scientist who developed the World Wide Web, yet we rely on water and waste networks from the 19th century. Our railways are a throwback to the 1970s. We have some of the most congested roads in Europe, while our competitors continue to invest in cutting-edge infrastructure. The approach has been too incremental, haphazard and slow. Governments have focused on specific projects. Instead, rather than setting out a vision, costs stayed high and investors took their money elsewhere. All of that has to change. So last year, the coalition government produced the UK's first ever national infrastructure plan. 
to deliver the world-beating infrastructure our businesses need, from high-speed rail to cross-rail to green energy to the best super-fast broadband network in Europe. And we're galvanising around that plan with renewed energy, a gear shift in government to unblock the system and get the money out of the door. First money. Infrastructure doesn't come cheap. So over the spending review period, we have matched the plans of the previous government for capital spending at least in, in each year. We're protecting spending in science and research programmes, investing, for example, in new technology and innovation centres around the country. If we had more money, we would spend more on infrastructure. But there's no longer a tap in Whitehall to be turned on in times of need. And the absolute crux of this is stimulating private investment too. One way is by leveraging private money through the use of public funds, as our regional growth fund does, for example. For every £1 of government investment in that fund, the private sector is putting in £5 to create thousands of new jobs, targeted at areas too dependent on the public sector. I've asked Michael Hesseltine and his panel, when reviewing bids for the second round, to prioritise infrastructure projects that will deliver sustainable economic growth. And I'll be chairing a meeting of ministers to begin looking at them this afternoon. Our Green Investment Bank will also leverage funds for low-carbon infrastructure in the region of an extra £18 billion by 2014-2015. Vince Cable is ensuring government identifies the first projects get support faster than originally planned, looking at those from next month to get them moving as quickly as possible. And Chris Hune will shortly be setting out our support for renewable energy a year ahead of schedule, providing certainty for investors, capitalising on the UK's position as the largest market for offshore wind. We're also ramping up our sales pitch. We know that the, we know that the UK misses out because investors simply don't know the opportunities that are on offer. We know they hesitate if they don't see a long-term strategy. So I've asked Lord Green to use his Trade and Investment Committee to get our plan out there. Next week, Lord Sassoon will travel to Canada to pitch to pension fund investors. Later this month, Lord Green will do the same to leaders of the Gulf Sovereign Wealth Funds. We're targeting the Middle East, Latin America and China, where there are investors with five-year investment plans of over £150 billion each. Finally, Finding the money isn't just up to us. The cities minister, Greg Clark, and I met with leaders from all of our big cities last week. They are desperate to deliver the infrastructure their cities need. So we're drawing up new money-raising powers for councils to do just that, where they can borrow against future growth from locally raised business rates. Tomorrow, Philip Hammond will also set out our plans to, give com to, to giving communities more power over the funding and decisions for local transport schemes. So, as much public money as we can afford, a hunt for private investment, and new money-raising powers for local communities. But we also have to make sure that the money gets spent. There are a range of obstacles that can delay new infrastructure. Planning is most often cited, and that's going to change. Under our plans, if a development is sustainable, the starting point is, it will go through. Socially sustainable, 
economically sustainable and environmentally sustainable. Those reforms are the subject of some fierce debate. But let me just lay a few myths to rest. This isn't anything goes planning or the death of the countryside. We're putting local people in the driving seat in a way that they never have been before. Scrapping top-down regional decision-making so local people can choose the areas they want developed and those they don't. And crucially, making sure they get the roads, the rail, housing and other infrastructure their communities need. But the other barrier I want to talk about is actually within government. Whitehall. Identifying projects and funneling cash can take time. I understand that. These are big investments and you have to get them right. But failure to deliver major infrastructure projects on time, on budget, is a perennial problem in the United Kingdom. The extension of the Jubilee Line, delayed by over a year, costing an extra £1.4 billion. Wembley Stadium, meant to open in 2003, didn't open until 2007. Improvements to the West Coast Main Line, should have cost £2 billion and been completed in 2005, didn't finish until 2008 and cost four times that much. The list just goes on and on. And too often, Whitehall is part of the problem. So we have to break this cycle. The country needs jobs, and time is no longer on our side. So Whitehall will put its foot on the accelerator, making sure we deliver on our commitments. And to that end, I can announce that we're going through the nation's capital spending plans to handpick up to 40 of the biggest infrastructure projects, the ones most important to growth, which will be given new special priority status. Each will be individually rigorously examined by ministers to make sure there are no delays, no blockages, and the economy feels the benefits as quickly as possible. That includes, for example, high-speed broadband rollout, work to transform the efficiency of the national grid, major improvements to the rail network like Crossrail and Great Western Electrification, and projects to reduce congestion on our road network, targeting pinch points on the M1, the M25, and elsewhere. Where we need to get investors and developers in, we'll do so. Where local conversations need to happen, we'll make them happen. Whatever the problem is, regulation, funding, procurement, planning, if we can help unblock it, we will. Now, good work is already happening. For example, by Philip Hammond and his transport team, responsible for a huge chunk of government infrastructure investment. But to make sure it happens across the board, Danny Alexander, the Chief Secretary, will be tasked with shaking the Whitehall tree so no one is stockpiling capital that can be put to good use today. Danny has, this week, left Cabinet Ministers and top civil servants in no doubt of their responsibilities. Secretaries of State will have to report back to him on their progress throughout the autumn, and no one likes falling out with the Treasury. Since we came into government, Ministers have been expected to make savings. Now they're under the same pressure to spend the money they've got. And on top of all of that, we'll also soon be announcing our plans to boost house building, still its lowest since, at, at its lowest level since the 1920s. So to finish as I began, government is not helpless. The coalition government is not reluctant. Despite the darkening global picture, despite the need to stay on top of the deficit, We'll do whatever it takes to return our economy 
to health, whether driving cooperation abroad or pulling the right levers at home. As I said, a gear change for growth. Thank you very much for listening to me. Questions? Uh, yep, James. Um, James Landau, BBC. You're promising to spend capital budgets on time. Isn't that a little modest? Why not bring some of that spending forward? Well, as I said, we've got a huge pipeline of very ambitious infrastructure projects. The, the history of large infrastructure projects is that they're, they're delayed, they don't have the effects on the kind of short-term term stimulus in terms of job creation, nor the, 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 the good long-term effects because they're not delivered on budget or on time. That's what, we're in, that's what we're making sure doesn't happen. We're making sure there is no slippage because we can't afford any slippage in this, uh, in this environment. Gentlemen in front of you. Bernard Casey from uh, Warwick University and LSE. Um, we have an ageing society. People should be saving more. Um, you mentioned very briefly a trip by Lord Sassoon to Canada to try and involve pension funds in infrastructural investment. What about domestic pension funds and their involvement in the infrastructure? Can you comment further? No, I, I, I accept I should have perhaps um, also dwelt on that. I, I, um, I also expect Lord Green and his team to be as active in, in making sure that funds in this country... Uh, which have got significant resources, don't just either sit on the money or invest it in, I don't know, for the sake of argument, sort of safe assets like gold, and, and, and explain to them why infrastructure investment is a sensible thing for them to do for returns on their own, on their own, uh, on their own funds. Um, you know, there's a real, there seems to be a real gap of knowledge about what, what the opportunities are, and therefore, particularly at the times of uncertainty, for funds to... Um, invest in the kind of most obvious safe assets like gold rather than productive investments like infrastructure investment and that's what we need to uh, seek to change. There is by the way I think more generally not just in terms of investment funds but also in terms of corporate balance sheets a, a general kind of dilemma which is that you've actually got a lot of corporate balance sheets which are very healthy. There are a lot of companies sitting on a lot of money they're just not deploying it, they're just not using it and one of the knock-on effects of infrastructure spending and infrastructure project in communities out there is that it, 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 it helps foster a sense of confidence which then in turn encourages those companies which are sort of cash rich but have been very cautious about doing anything with their money to go out and in turn make their own investments which in turn creates jobs, creates growth, uh, helps the wheels of the economy uh, going. Gentleman there in the white t-shirt. Do you want to just wait for the um, mic? William Heath, Midex. You're still spending huge amounts of money unnecessarily on the infrastructure of government databases, and I think you need a big change in how you unleash the power of personal data in government. The Home Office has over 150 whole population databases. You cancelled the National ID Scheme. You cancelled Contact Point. We've still got centralised health records, centralised education records. You spent over £480 million with Lockheed Martin on the census. And the, the Intercept Modernisation Programme never even paused in the time the coalition was promising to roll back the database state. So I wonder if you'd be prepared in your infrastructure work to look at a major change, a complete change in uh, how you unleash the power of personal information so people can have choice, personalised services 
uh, a degree of control and, and, and self-sufficiency in a totally digital model? Well, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, I think we, that's a little bit ungenerous. I think um, uh, both in terms of uh, stopping some of the databases which were going to consume huge amounts of money, national identity database as well, changes on the census, as you know, but also the release of unprecedented amounts of data from government. I mean, I think, I mean, I hope you would acknowledge that what Francis Maud and others have done in releasing data that otherwise have been hoarded by government will itself create a massive stimulus for both individuals and, and other sort of entrepreneurial folk to use that data for, for good effect. So, look, I mean, I, I totally accept the challenge that, of course, Whitehall is always, is always going to have a sort of genetic uh, predisposition to hoarding data, hoarding information, and constructing ever yet more kind of data castles in the sky. We need to be vigilant uh, um, about that, and I believe Francis Maud and his team are. But one of the kind of ways which we've really sought to kind of rattle the cage in all of that is by breaking down all the, the, the barriers which hitherto have prevented um, um, uh, uh, the public having access to a huge amount of information which, um, which had been um, sort of husbanded rather jealously, guarded rather jealously by officials and uh, politicians. Uh, yes? Tim Loinig. Tim Loinig from the London School of Economics. You talked about Danny bringing forward expenditure, and I just wondered if you wanted to put a figure on how much expenditure, extra infrastructure spending, you hope Danny will be able to advance over the course of the autumn. I'm not going to put, uh, I'm not going to put figures on a process which, haven't, which hasn't yet been completed, but what is clear to me, having looked at it in uh, a considerable amount of detail, is uh, firstly there is, a, there is a perhaps entirely understandable built-in caution to the way in which these big capital projects are handled by government, which unsurprisingly led to this almost kind of unbroken record of delay and, and, and overspend. Uh, and if, you were, if, if we were going to put as much pressure on Whitehall as we are now going to about getting the money out of the door on time as we are, have been putting pressure on making uh, cuts and savings, I believe that has itself a... A, an accelerating effect on activity out in the real economy. So it's not about, I mean, it's a bit, this is my answer to James Landon, it's not really about seeking to, to move, you know, on the sort of spreadsheet um, of, of the government's accounts, one block of money from one column to the next. It's about making sure that the very, very considerable amounts of money attached to very significant infrastructure projects are, are, are deployed much more rapidly than otherwise would be, than otherwise would be um, uh, the case. Yeah. You, yes, yes, sorry. Do you want to take Soraya Kishtawari, The Times. Um, Deputy Prime Minister, you've been talking about uh, a gear change. Um, to a lot of people listening to you today, um, this, sounds, this change sounds more like a, a change in priorities for, for the government. Um, is this the government's way of acknowledging that... that uh, their plans to date, namely that of deficit reduction and focusing on that, that that's not been enough and much more needs to be done? But, uh, I'm sure you'll be tempted to try and uh, um, amplify it in a way that I don't think is entirely justified by the content of my speech. This isn't a sort of lurch in one direction, still less any kind of great sort of uh, you know, revelation of, of some ideological debate going on about our uh, economic policy. Our strategy was always based, firstly, on creating a fiscal context in which government could at least then seek to be a master of our own destiny. I mean, if you need any evidence of the 
value of that, just look at the way in which government after government elsewhere have had to meet in emergency sessions during the summer, harried and tortured and sort of hunted by the markets to make um, involuntary panic um, budget decisions. We haven't had to do that because we've created the... But it's only a framework, and it always ever was thus. And what we have been doing, and perhaps what we haven't explained sufficiently enough, is that at the same time there are, yes, supply-side reforms, red tape, tax and so on, but there's also an issue of demand, and we need to be kind of explicit about that. And government plays a role in making sure that, 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 that both public and private investment is channeled in a way which promotes long-term growth, helps stimulate demand, and helps create short-term uh, jobs. That was always, in a sense, the strategy. What we are uh, recognising, absolutely and totally overtly, be bizarre not to, is of course the international, the economic context in which we operate, has deteriorated, deteriorated very sharply, and and it would be a kind of, you know, it would be a sort of sign of of kind of blockheaded approach to these things if we didn't seek to respond to that within the within the parameters that we set. And that's what we're doing, and that's why I'm talking today about about what we can do on the demand side what we can do on infrastructure, uh, and there's a whole lot more that we will do and we will announce uh, over the weeks and months ahead. Uh, yeah, the back, Norman. Thanks, Norman Smith, uh, BBC News Channel. I don't think you dispute that there has been a fairly severe squeeze on living standards. Given the darkening global picture which you point to, how long do you think is that squeeze on living standards likely to go on for? I think anyone who sort of peers into a sort of crystal ball and claims they know exactly what's going to happen to the global economy, um, I think is a sort of fool or a charlatan. So I, 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 just wouldn't, I just wouldn't get into the constant kind of game of, of, of um, making predictions, especially because, as I said, the nature of these economic difficulties are perhaps more profound than many people were prepared to acknowledge before. Uh, what we're seeing, not in, just in the United Kingdom, but elsewhere as well, is this huge, difficult, painful process of kind of deleveraging the whole economy. Governments dealing with debts, consumers dealing with credit cards debts, households dealing with mortgage debts, banks dealing with you know, shattered balance sheets. Everybody overstretched themselves. Everybody spent money without working out where on earth it was going to come from if, things, if the merry-go-round didn't continue. And you just can't kind of put Humpty Dumpty back together again by next Tuesday. There's a, really, there's a big shift going on here and elsewhere where we're trying to move from a basic model of economic growth, which was premised, I would date it basically back to the, kind of the mid-80s, the period of the Big Bang, on the idea that easy, cheap money spent by governments, spent by consumers, spent by banks, could somehow indefinitely lubricate the, the economy. All of that has just come to a crashing halt. You know, the, the banks are no longer kind of laying these kind of golden eggs as if they were sort of great big sort of golden egg laying goose for the Treasury. The Treasury can't take those monies and then redeploy them to other parts of the economy through public sector subsidies. The bank's balance sheets are in a mess and the government's balance sheets are in a mess. And I just think, you know, we need to be really, really clear that it does, does take some time to both deal with the immediate consequences of that mess, which is a fiscal crisis, and the long-term consequences of re rewiring the British economy away from debt towards investment, away from just debt-fueled consumption, and towards innovation and um, export. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, okay. 
one, one after the other. Um, thanks. Uh, Sophie Ridge, Sky News. Um, you're talking about the fragile economy, the need to deal with the deficit. Um, today, some unions have indicated that they're going to be balloting their members on strike action. Do you think that's if irresponsible actions by the unions? I think it's very regrettable that they're rushing to announce uh, um, uh, days of, of action and strikes when discussions are still going on. Um, look, it'd be lovely to wave a magic wand and say we've suddenly discovered pots of gold in Whitehall. That the ageing population is not getting older. That, oh hallelujah, actually all our pension funds are entirely sustainable. That we don't need to borrow on the backs of the young people to uh, fund the costs of retirement of, of older people. That's just not where we're at. And, you know, that's why we ask, not a, not a politician from the coalition parties, but a Labour politician, John Hutton, to look at this and ask some really basic questions that every single society in the developed world is grappling with. Is how do you make public pension systems sustainable at a time when people are living a whole lot longer and where the kind of intergenerational deal uh, becomes financially impossible to sustain over a period of time. He came up with a number of conclusions. We're talking to the unions about how we can translate that into practice. The discussions are going on. And we have entered into those discussions in good faith. We'll continue to do so. And I don't think it helps that process if there are strikes being called in the meantime. I think we've got time for, well, it's up to you, one or one plus one more. I've probably got one plus one. One, okay. one there and then. Alex Forrest, ITV News. Um, you mentioned that unemployment is up again. It's up by 80,000. Uh, it's going up basically month on month. What can the government do to tackle that problem immediately? And secondly, given the fact that unemployment is rising, we've got this crisis in the Eurozone, the private sector is not creating the jobs that you want it to. Is it time for a second round of quantitative easing, injecting more money into the economy? Well, as I said, clearly one of the effects of a, of a, of a tight fiscal policy is that you allow uh, monetary authorities a degree of discretion. Um, but it's up to them as an independent central bank to, to take those decisions. But that, you know, that, it, it clearly permits that kind of space for, for those kind of uh, steps to be taken if that's, if that's felt to be necessary by, by the central bank. Um, look, there are a, a range of things we can and must do, whether it is really holding the bank's feet, feet to the fire on their commitments to very significantly increase lending into the uh, real economy under the so-called Merlin Agreement. That's immensely important to allow uh, companies to raise money to uh, increase employment. The kind of things I'm talking about here, many of these infrastructure projects, they have great long-term effects for the kind of growth and producti productivity of the economy, but the really great thing about them as well is they're a very, very effective way of employing large numbers of people quickly um, when they're actually being uh, constructed uh, on the ground. We're clearly also introducing significant and controversial reforms in the benefit system to make sure there are no disincentives to seeking and finding work uh, in the benefit system. These are all the kind of things that we, uh, we are seeking to do. But you're, you're right, as long as there's a sense of fragility and uncertainty in the wider economic context, you always run the risk, as I said earlier, that companies especially don't spend money investing in, in, in new jobs because they're kind of just holding back a bit, waiting to see what happens. It's a totally understandable response. And one of the things we need to do through all the measures I've described, not least by showing that we are doing our bit to get economic activity going on the ground, is that that then has a knock-on effect on everybody else's confidence. I'll take one more question. 
Thank you very much. Jean-Pierre Zigrant, LSE. On the demand side, would you be prepared to drop the 50% tax or the mansion tax if it turned out that the cost of you know, collecting those taxes is higher than the money raised by those taxes? The French have a wealth tax. It has always lost more money than it, than it raised. Or do you think that the voters want to have such a tax just to be happy that others pay even more taxes than they have to? You, you, you framed it in terms of, you framed the issue about the 50p tax in terms of demand, right? And what does that mean in human terms? That means how do you get more people with a bit more money in their pocket going out spending it in the shops, right? As far as the personal income tax system is concerned. The priority, and those economists amongst you, I guess, would confirm this, the people who are most likely to go out and spend more money in the real economy are not the, what is it, 300,000 people out of 30 million taxpayers, it's people on low and middle incomes. All the evidence very clearly shows that if you, can, if you can help them, if you can provide them with some tax relief, that's the best way to get a bit more consumer demand in the economy. And that is the re that's the economic reason, as well as the obvious moral and social reasons of greater fairness, that the coalition agreement, when it was formed, said very unambiguously, it was written into the coalition agreement, that our priority when it comes to tax policy remains alleviating the tax burden on the millions and millions, not, not just a few hundred thousand, but the millions and millions of basic rate taxpayers and people on low and middle incomes. And I think the economic logic of that, on the demand side, has only increased over time. And that's why uh, you know, our push, for instance, to increase the threshold, the point at which you start, first start paying income tax, remains the centrepiece and the priority of, of this government's tax policies. With that, can I thank you very, very much indeed for listening to me. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, just to conclude, um, before I formally thank uh, the Deputy Prime Minister for visiting the school today, uh, I'd like to ask that when we descend from the platform, you just pause a moment in order that I can uh, uh, allow him to keep to his timetable. Uh, it's been a great pleasure uh, to have the opportunity uh, for me and indeed I suspect for all of you uh, to listen to Nick this morning and to engage with him on these uh, very important issues. If I can add a personal note, I'm fascinated and Nick, Tim Moynig picked this point up, the thought of Danny Alexander going out encouraging uh, public spending, quite a first for a Treasury <laughs> Minister in modern times, so interesting to hear that. Uh, we're most grateful to you that you could find time today uh, to come to the school to be with us, and I would like everyone to show their appreciation. Thank you very much. For your time.